Coming up next, if you're a serial killer or an assassin, you'll like this episode. everybody welcome to the booking that's a thing isn't it is aren't wasn't there some famous assassin or somebody that was into catcher in it's the rye like a whole mel gibson movie about yeah it. The, 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 i know the mel gibson movie but the mel gibson movie i thought was referencing something yeah it's always weird when you get your pop culture references one step removed you know like growing up watching the simpsons stuff like that there were so many references that i got first the joke version and then i got the real version later but well, yeah there is one uh one serial killer who or at least psychopath who claims that Catcher in the Rye is his favorite novel. Would it be Mr. Manson? Bill Gates. Oh, Bill Gates. <laughs> Famed psychopath ah. Bill Gates. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, uh, I, I think we need to get to the bottom of this. Somebody, it looks like maybe you guys are both on this. So looking at it. I'll just keep talking to the audience and while you, you, until you guys have some information. So women. So last guy, week we said women shouldn't read Jane Eyre, and I don't think they should read Jane Eyre. I mean, come on, we don't. We, Several shootings have been associated. But, oh. Several shootings have been associated with Salinger's novel, including Robert John Bardo's murder of Rebecca Schaefer and John Hinckley Jr.'s assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. John Hinckley Jr. That's Additionally, the famous one. After fatally shooting John Lennon, Mark David Chapman was arrested with a copy of the book that he had purchased that same day, inside of which he had written to Holden Caulfield from Holden Caulfield. Oh, this me. is my statement. And here's the excuses people make for themselves. Here is a writer on BuzzFeed. He says, when I first read it at 20, Catcher was a revelation. But not for the reason you might assume. I fell in love with the language. It is still one of the most exquisitely rendered character studies I've ever read. The originality and power and consistency of the voice, so brilliantly controlled, so precisely deployed, not a word out of place. Yeah, I mean, it seems really carefully written to me. (laughs) Folks. Let me introduce us because I think we want to get right to it today because Brandon is, he has been chomping at the bit to come after this book now for months since since we announced it. I don't even really get to come after it today. Yeah, no, you're going to have to be Mr. Nice, well. Context guy. Context guy, yeah. Maybe some baggage. Maybe some baggage. We'll see. We'll see how far we get. Could just make it a one minute context and then we'd have all the time in the world to tear it apart. (laughs) Does this book deserve more than one episode? We'll find out. Yeah, we will find out. I I will confess to have not having reread the book in time for this podcast, so I might appreciate having another one to give my thoughts on. But hey, I remember it pretty well. Hmm. It's a memorable book, full of that exquisite exquisite language and character study and all that. Not a word out of place. (laughs) Not a word out of place. Not a... According to somebody who now writes for BuzzFeed. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't said any of our names. My name is Nathan Aaron Alberson. I'm going to say all our middle names so that you can wonder whether we are, in fact, psychopaths, serial killers, or presidential assassins that like this book, because those people tend to use all three of their names. So you got Nathan Aaron Alberson, you got Jacob Kyle Menzel, and Brandon Scott Chastain shaking his head in <laughs> disdain right now. I'm just reading this article. This is funny. <laughs> you don't shift 65 million copies by being universally derided, but I'm aware it isn't universally loved either. It isn't a cool book and it has suffered at the hands of its own popularity. Cliché is born of ubiquity. <laughs> uh, you know, that's... Uh, th- 
cliche is it is born of ubiquity not born of ubiquity oh i guess it is born of ubiquity let's see if that itself is a cliche or if that's his own thing i i kind of like that sentence cliche is born of ubiquity cliches are ubiquitous no it might be his own his own phrase cliches were born of well guess what maybe he has a career for the new yorker in his future cliche is born of ubiquity is a cool sentence does anybody have a problem with that sentence if we had said it we would have put it on a t-shirt oh yeah absolutely well maybe he needs to come and guest speak on what is this guy's name if he wants to come on the booking that's fine with me dan dalton dan dalton dan if you're listening you want to come talk about catcher in the rye open invitation buddy open invitation probably does listen yeah i don't know who doesn't i assume most buzzfeed people yeah yeah yeah. uh where were we brandon we're talking about catcher in the rye yeah i know the guns the guns are going off yep that's indicating that brandon chastain is a contextual texan he from Texas, and he provides much-needed context on this work, and the work in question today, Catching the Rye, J.D. Salinger. I don't even know what the J.D. stands for. What does the J.D. stand for, Brandon? Jerome David. Jerome Sorry. David Salinger. Brandon, you're going to provide some much-needed context on the work after yeah, yeah, giving yeah. us a hail and hearty... Yeehaw! Is that good? That's Was hail and, the hail and hearty enough for you, Jake? I feel like... It was hearty. I don't know about... Yeah, yeah, there was some hardiness there, but the the hail. Yeah. That was much better. That was much better. better. Yeah. That was That's more hail. Yeah, that was definitely was more hail. More more hail than hardy even, let's say. Yeah, if you could just combine. Yeah. Maybe you go ha ha ha. Yeah. Okay. Pretty hail and hardy, I guess. I don't wow. Feel- well, tell me all about Jerome David Salinger and his great work, Catcher in the Rye. Let's do Brandon. it. So I suppose I don't have a choice. Based on that ubiquitous phrase, to catch in the rye. To catch in the rye. Uh, meet. Oh, that's right. We to meet a up. body in the rye. Yeah. yeah. That's actually in one of the ends of one of the chapters when he's talking to his sister. It comes in two different places. Yeah, there's I mean, a, there's I know a kid. Holden describes the fantasy that he had. Does he say his, it's based on a song or a poem or something? To his sister, yeah. No, early, earlier in the book, there's a kid walking down the street that captures Holden's imagination and the kid's skipping in the street singing to catch a body, to catch a body in the rye. And then later he's just telling his sister that what he wants to be is the catcher in the rye. And his sister's like, uh, you know, it's like to meet a body in the rye or something like, I don't know. Brandon's uh, got it. He's going to read it to us. You know that song, if a body catch a body coming through the rye, I'd like, it's if a body meet a body coming through the rye, old Phoebe said. It's a poem. By Robert Burns. I know it's a poem by Robert Burns. She was right, though. It is if a body meet a body coming through the rye. I didn't know it then, though. I thought it was if a body catch a body, I said. Anyway, I keep picturing all these little kids playing some game in this big field of rye and all. Thousands of little kids and nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean, except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What I have to do, I have to catch everybody if they start to go over the cliff. I mean, if they're running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and catch them. That's all I'd do all day. I'd just be the catcher in the rye and all. I know it's crazy, but that's the only thing I'd really like to be. I know it's crazy. Not a word out of place. I was it's kind of moving. I don't know. Mm. He's, got a, he's got a messianic complex, just like many a young man. Isn't that moving? I think Brandon just hates young people. I might. That might be my problem. Well, we'll find out. We'll find out. I think Brandon might hate this book, folks. I think I might like this book, but again, I have not reread it in time for this podcast, but I, I will for next week's episode. When we will f- definitively answer whether when, or not you when, hate this book. When we will definitively answer this question. But take it away with your context, Mr. Unbiased Context. Yeah. Man. 
Mr. Unbiased Context, man. This book was published in 1951, mm-hmm. and which means it puts it kind of at the tail end of the 1940s. Yep. And would you like to know some of the other books that were published in the 1940s? I thought you'd never ask. Oh, sweet. A Streetcar Named Desire. Hey. Appeared in 1947. Yeah, we are doing that. Yep. 1951 is a gala um, year. We got All the King's Men. It's enough for me. We'll do that one of these days. Yeah, which Robert was uh, published in 1946. Uh, Black Boy by Richard Wright. Another uh, one by Steinbeck, Cannery Row. Um, Canary Row? Canary Row, sure. Oh, it's C-A-N-N-E-R-Y. Oh, is it Cannery? I don't I know. I think it's Cannery. Yeah, okay. I think it is Cannery right. Row. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the complete poems of Robert Frost appear that year. Nice. Uh, a Death of a Salesman. I think, are we doing that one? Maybe. No, we're doing his other one, Crucible. We're doing Crucible. But oh. Maybe we should just do Death of a Salesman. You know, I would. Ra- I hate the Crucible, actually. Eh, maybe we should do the Crucible. I don't know. Well, okay. For Whom the Bell Tolls. Hey. The Fountainhead. Boo. Four Quartets. Yay. <laughs> the Glass Menagerie. Mm, Good yay. Night Moon. Yay. There you go. Yeah. Who would have thought that would... I was waiting for something good to be on that list. Yeah, 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 yeah. The heart is <laughs> the heart is a lonely hunter. Carson McCullers, the heart is the lonely hunter. Very good, Nathan. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon. I thought that was just a line from a country song. I'm smart, and <laughs> the, I proved it to our listener. The Lottery. Oh, by Shirley Jackson. Very good. One of the greatest short stories ever written. Uh-huh. Jake doesn't like it. Yeah, neither do I. Uh, make way for ducklings. The problem with you guys is you can't go back in time and put yourself in the... You're like, well... Hey, Nathan. Things have become cliches. So, okay, true. You got me there. Jake's holding up a copy of The Witness for the Prosecution. (laughs) I didn't say I was consistent. Yeah. Should I read what you wrote in each of these little books that we're sending out? (laughs) (laughs) Look, you got to realize that Salinger invented this stuff. Shirley Jackson invented the bring the trope of like bringing old pagan ritual into the modern world and having modern people do it so we had to think like what if we were the ones doing the old pagan rituals actually we're just like those old pig that's what the lottery did and we're all so thankful for her um (laughs) (laughs) what would the world be like without shirley jackson the world would be a poorer place i like old shirley jackson haunting of hill house i'm gonna make you guys do that one for october one of these years you Thank did you. it this year. We I actually didn't specify anything except for scary short stories. Well, Hunting of Horse of Hell House is a, no- is a novel. It's a, a shorter okay. novel, though. I don't know. I well, figured we'd have a novella in there. Yeah, well, maybe Let's we should. do that one. And, oh, I think we promised people some Edgar Allan Poe, finally. Yeah, we'll do some Poe. Our favorite. I thought we were going to do some, uh, what's his face? We got to do Lovecraft. Yeah, some H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, and I think we were going to do some Nathaniel Hawthorne, maybe Goodman brown yeah, yeah i mean if we were just gonna do the classics we do the monkey's paw young goodman brown not anything by irving that guy's a hack actually he's fine but who wants to do sleepy hollow or the one with it's the fun. guy that sleeps yeah they're fun but what are we gonna talk about that was the good. fact that it's fun yeah, it's fun but we don't do fun brandon we read the catcher <laughs> in the rye so we can enter into the uh, the uh what's the, the word on, the ennui into, yeah into the ennui and the angst of a young man, the trouble. Of people who have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> the ennui of the... <laughs> it's easy to tear things down, Brandon. It's harder. It sure is. I'm, and I'm, I'm going to get myself on a, in the noble flag. I'm going to get on a soapbox here pretty soon. Don't worry. Don't worry. I have... <laughs> says, the, says the Bookening's premier iconoclast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who, me or Brandon? And you. I've, I think you're the, I don't know who has that reputation now. It just depends on what we think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If we're doing something um, popular, then Brandon wants to rip it down. 
Hmm. I think. Probably true. Ready Player One, Catcher in the Rye. Hey, Catcher in the Rye's bad. If we're doing something stupid and dumb, then I want to <laughs> rip it down. Oh, come on, Nathan. <laughs> That's true. I wasn't on. I wasn't against Agatha Christie, so I'm not always in that camp. I was against Agatha Christie because she's boring. I may. We, we'll see. Maybe I'll come around to your side. Nathan. The one sin is to be boring. That's not really the one sin. There's lots of other sins besides that, but one of the sins <laughs> is to be boring. I don't actually know that sin uh, from the Bible. That's yeah, right there. Say you've never been boring. The, you know the eleven commandments. It's right. It's, it's right in those <laughs> number eleven. Okay, Brandon, Native Son, also published in the forties. Well, there you go. And finally, drum roll. Pretty good one here, Stuart Little. Oh, cool. Nineteen forty-five. So we're looking at a fairly good year for literature, and during that period, born in nineteen nineteen, and so it would have put him squarely in his twenties at this point. Mm-hmm. Squarely. Squarely would have been one. Jerome David Salinger. So who was Mr. Jerome David Salinger? He was. <laughs> Wait a second. In his 20s? In 51? 20s in, his, in the 40s. Oh, in the 40s. By 51, when he got Catcher in the Rye published, would have been, a, I'm technically considering that the tail end of the 40s. All right. And look at some of the books that were published there and argue to, uh, and make the point that it's not, of it's not kind of making a twist on that. Because I mean, in its own way, Catcher in the Rye was groundbreaking, in the, if you want to call pornography groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to call just outright, uh, allow like if you if for the same people who called Pulp Fiction groundbreaking, Catcher in the Rye is groundbreaking. I will refrain from responding to that. I think that actually that's not a bad thesis statement. In the way that Pulp Fiction was groundbreaking for cinema, Catcher in the Rye was groundbreaking for literature. And I kind of think that might be true. Nathan. It broke the mold and enabled, but not to in any good ways. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about. That. Well, well, I'm probably not today. I kind of get to do whatever I want today, including yeah. I feel like chairs. I feel like I've given you too much power. Yeah, I get to load the decks. Yeah, you are going to load the decks. <laughs> load it up, baby. Let's do it. If you just look at these books, I mean, so you had some. Is load the decks a card term or a boat term? I think it's a card term. Card. It's like stack. Oh the yeah, deck. stack, stack the decks. Duh, That's what I meant. Duh. Stack the decks. I was picturing like a boat and. I think I was mixing metaphors. People there. were bringing cannons onto the boat, and they were like loading. I'm pretty it up sure with the reason we were confused is because I was mixing metaphors. And, and there was people that were going to fall load the, off of the boat, and I was you catching load the them. dock. I could do that all day. I could just catch people and keep them from falling off of a boat where Brandon is stacking the the decks. Yeah, loading the decks, loading the deck. But stacking the decks would be us sitting with uh, Kenny Rogers. But you load the what? I'm sorry. You load the docks. You load the dock. And that's not even a. St- Phrase. No, it's not phrase. I mean, it's a it's a thing you do, right? Okay, so but if you look at these books, you have all the king's men, mm-hmm. which even though it was modernist to an extent, it's still a classic novel in its form, and it's looking at the fall of a great man. Well, in this sense, uh, people can't see me using my quotation marks here, but it's a, a great great man. man. Yeah. You have the Harlem Renaissance that's happening, so you have Black Boy and Native Son that are kind of at the tail end of that, even, but still. Now, what about good classic African American streetcar crucible? Or no, you said streetcar and streetcar um, named desire. Yeah, so we're getting there. And it, it, but those are both theater, relatively new, groundbreaking things. Like yeah, they would have been more new cinema, new because even a streetcar named desire when it got into Hollywood was fairly groundbreaking as oh, well. Oh yeah, and, and it made uh, the career of that guy who everybody loves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Uh, Colonel Kurtz. What's his name? Uh, Brando. Brando. Marlon Brando. Brando. That's right. Mm-hmm. So you have this. You have the tail end of some people's careers, like Cannery Row with. And also you have for him the bell tolls, which is again a, a high a high uh, mark of modernist literature. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, another kind of modernist novel. And then you also then would have uh, the other probably most modernist of all of these would be the Four Quartets. If either of you have ever read this, 
esoteric. Mm-hmm. But this would be in C- uh, T.S. Eliot's Christian phase, right, where he's writing about uh, the dove of fire descends like a tongue of fire and all that. I think I've read that. The dove descends. The dove. How's it go? The the dove descends like a. Oh, I don't know. So the point being that this is both a high mark for what will become the new cinema, the new theater, and also <clears throat> modernist literature coming kind of to its tail end. We're right in World War II here, and so we'll start taking a move towards postmodernism. And this is when J.D. Salinger is writing. And he's not necessarily really modernist in the sense that if you think of modernism as very tightly crafted, carefully constructed, and also pretty cold in the sense that like Hemingway would be or T.S. Eliot, these guys who are writing in the same decade, he's not necessarily modernist. He's also not even necessarily postmodernist. I mean, you could argue that Holden Caulfield's postmodern in the sense that he's an unreliable narrator. But you'd had unreliable narrators before. He's definitely not postmodern in the sense that he's dealing with truth and dealing with reality in the way that Borges or Samuel Beckett, like those guys are who we think of as really postmoderns. So he's more just American, actually. I think that's the best way to put it is he's, a lot of people argue that he's in the, he's the great inheritor of Huckleberry Finn, mm-hmm. that Holden Caulfield is Makes our sense. century's Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. And so we can talk about that later, that this is our century's great teen drama. A look into the imagination of a young teenage boy. Short conversation won't take very long to agree that that's true. <laughs> Short conversation won't take long to agree that it's not worth it. <laughs> Who wants to know the imagination of a teenage boy? Uh, you got me there. That's a good question. Mr. Antonini. Yeah. Yeah. I guess yeah, he might. That is the answer. Um. So, yeah. It's J.D. Salinger. J.D. Salinger. Yeah. A generation of Americans that better understood the soul of America. But... More than just like what train did he follow in? One thing you do have to give J.D. Salinger is he kind of created this introspective, anxious, cool, hip cat, if you want to say, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. That a lot of these later, I don't know how no. you would put it otherwise. <laughs> You're not the contextual beatnik. Yeah. Cool kid, cat man. <laughs> But so what I'm thinking is you would have later writers in American history. You're in a West Side Story now. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You would have later. All right. Go ahead. Nathan, are you paying attention? Yes, Brendan, I'm paying attention. (laughs) You would have later. You would definitely have writers who would come in his train who would be influenced by Salinger. Obviously, Philip Roth is one of them. I mean, I think that without a doubt, Philip Roth. John Updike is definitely one of them. These writers who would not exist today if J.D. Salinger had not written Catcher in the Rye. So inarguably... Catcher in the Rye is an important novel in American history. Now, I would argue that, do we really need Philip Roth? Do we really need the novels that John Updike wrote? No. I think that a lot of the essays John Updike wrote, perfect. Agreed. If John Updike had just had his career as a writer in that vein, I would love John Updike. But the fact that he wrote Rabbit Run, uh, Rabbit Run's worthless. I mean, <laughs> I'm just grabbing my mic here. I feel like, uh, who's that? I feel like... With every episode, I'm becoming more like Alex. What's his name? Alex. The uh, libertarian Alex guy. Alex Jones. Alex or, Jones, yeah. yeah. I'm just like the literature, literary Alex Jones. Yep. <laughs> John Updike is worthless. <laughs> He's a reptilian overlord. <laughs> Philip Roth is one of the gray men. Now, I do tend to think that the one virtue, the one value of Philip Roth is the fact that he laid the groundwork for somebody who would come much later and who just recently died who would take what he did and perfect it and actually write valuable literature. J.K. Rowling. No, she J.K. Didn't Rowling. Just die. He's one that we all share a common love for, but I'm not sure we've ever announced his name. Oh, Mr. Johnson? Yeah, Dennis Johnson. Dennis Don- Dotson? 
Yeah. And I mean, I think he, I would, I think he's the great, a great genius in the American tradition, but Dennis Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all agree, but we don't want to admit it because he's pretty vulgar, but he is catcher in the rye matured. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think that it goes without, I mean, I think you guys would agree with that. Maybe not there, but so all that to say, I'm wanting to lay the groundwork. Where does Salinger come from? Kind of, he's his own thing. And he actually kind of creates a new genre of literature, really. He's in communication a little bit with guys like Graham Greene to an extent. I mean, there's a little bit of Graham Greene's, what would you call it, a confessional style of Mm -hmm. literature and also the confessional style of poetry that was going on at the time. Um, He actually tried to write a series of poems for the New Yorker that were all rejected. (laughs) E.B. White would have been the editor then, and E.B. White tried to save us. But then E.B. White got into children's literature and lost some of his control over the New Yorker. And then, oh, J.D. Salinger slipped in. (laughs) Well, and what a shame. <laughs> E.B. White could have saved us. But we, we could have had no Charlotte's Web and no Catcher in the Rye, but... Yeah, I think I would take E.B. White, uh, Charlotte's Web, and... You would ex- you will accept the... It's a Catch-22. I mean, because you, when it comes down to it, and this will kind of spoil the ending to my argument, but whatever. The people in the... Uh, J.D. Salinger, in the end, found the same sort of people who were going to find Dostoevsky anyways. Mm-hmm. That's all he did. Um, he became the American version of the guys who were going to find Dostoevsky. And so those guys were going to find either him or they were going to find Dostoevsky or they were going to find Woody Allen. There was always this sort of narcissistic navel gazer that they were going to find, this cockroach hiding under the baseboards mm-hmm. that was always ready to scuttle out and pretend like they're a writer. <laughs> Get it. <laughs> Don't say you really mean Oh, boy. It's my least favorite sarcastic com comment that people make is tell us how you really tell feel. Tell us what you really think. In, in case tell that, us how you really feel. In case it wasn't really clear from the and disdainful that's, And that's completely that. admitting that there are parts of this book that really moved me. Like there are scenes where he shows real talent. Mm-hmm. So like there's a famous story where he, and so we can get into his biography now. That was a long digression towards the end, but hey, in the spirit of Holden Caulfield, who just loves digressions and doesn't quite understand why your teacher would expect you to stay on point and actually make a point. We begin with a digression. I really think we should put, there are scenes, there are scenes where he shows promise. What, what was it you just said? There are uh, scenes in this book. Whatever really it was, it me. was so memorable. We were going to put it on a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. That the, thing you said 10 seconds ago. Yep. That he really moved me. There are scenes where he really moved me. Yeah. There, in particular, I'm thinking of the scene where he talks about Jane and the first time they necked is what mm-hmm. he called it. But it's, he's tiptoeing around the fact that her stepfather comes out and he asks her for a cigarette and she doesn't respond and she just starts crying. And he knows that there's some reason she's crying and that something's happened between her and her stepfather that he doesn't know what it is. And so he just goes over to comfort her, right? And so it's Holden has this ability to understand pain and suffering. And you get that he said that whatever happened with Mr. Antonini later on, it happened to him 20 times before and it always creeped him out. And so you just wonder, like, what is there? I see. That's why... That's why I love this book, really, uh, mm-hmm. is I love authors that can just show you the tip of the iceberg and tell you everything without telling you anything. Well, go back and read it first. Okay. <laughs> That's why I remember liking it. You just reminded me of what I found moving about it. I think what you're going to find, Nathan, when you read it is you're going to find the same moments that I found moving to be moving. But I'll have to wade end, through a whole bunch of n- Yeah. The end is going to be fairly dis- disappointing. Junk. That's fair. We'll, we'll find out. And I think that the reason it all is, in the end, the sort of junk you were saying is because J.D. Salinger was that kind of guy. Mm. So then to get to it. Yes, do tell. Born in 1919, and he was raised in Manhattan. And his father sold kosher cheese 
Kosher cheese? Kosher. kosher. Oh, kosher cheese. Yeah. And was from Lithu- uh, a Jewish family of Lithuanian descent, which mean, means that his dad was Jewish. His mom actually wasn't Jewish. She came from Atlantic, Iowa, and she was of German, Irish, and Scottish descent. Yeah. But he wouldn't actually find out his mother wasn't Jewish, I think, until after his bar mitzvah. <laughs> so he grew up thinking he was Jewish. But his, family, his uh, parents weren't particularly religious. Uh, one um, interview that I read with him said that it was a comfort riding Catcher in the Rye because most of Catcher in the Rye was actually autobiographical, at least to an extent. He went to public schools on the west side of Manhattan for a while, but then he would actually go to, a, when his family would move, I, I couldn't quite find out why they moved, but they moved to Park Avenue, which seems like a pretty affluent move. Mm-hmm. And so when, maybe his dad really sold some pretty expensive kosher cheese. I don't know. Maybe kosher cheese is just expensive. But they eventually got to move there and he went to a private school. He was actually the captain of a, um, a fencing club, huh. which that provides sort of the impetus for the first couple of chapters is Holden forgetting his fencing equipment in Manhattan while he was there with his team. So a lot of this is autobiographical. <laughs> a lot of what Holden thinks is probably what J.D. Salinger would have actually thought. And there's actually evidence that Holden Caulfield was a character well before Catcher in the Rye became a thing. So in some of the earliest stories that uh, J.D. Salinger wrote, he would have this character called Holden Caulfield. One of the earliest stories he actually sent to the New Yorker, I believe it was rejected, was about a day in the life of this disenchanted teenage boy before World War II, and his name was Holden Caulfield. And so that to say, Holden, kind of like David Copperfield for Dickens, or maybe Levin for Tolstoy, has this special place in their author's imagination. And for characters like that, the, another famous example would be Stephen Dedalus for James Joyce. Uh, we never read him, but he's the main character in A Portrait of an Artist and also Ulysses, one of the main characters. Characters like this give us an intimate picture of what the author thinks about themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I, I don't just think, I mean, it's pretty obvious that Holden Caulfield gives us a good glimpse of what at least a teenage J.D. Salinger thought of himself. Right? Or what a, an older J.D. Salinger thought of his teenage self. Yes. Or thought his teenage self was like. Yes, and whether or not that's believable is a good portion of what we'll talk about. The other stuff that's pretty moving is his relationship with Allie, his brother who died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all that because I had a cousin. I think that I've mentioned this before. She died when she was six, and we had to watch her die, and it was awful. And just seeing the effects that that actually can have on a family, seeing the effects that that actually has on people that are counter to what you would expect it would have, that actually stuck, struck pretty true. Anyways. Apparently, he wasn't the greatest student. He wasn't an awful student. He wasn't anything like Holden. He never flunked out. Um, but he, he was part of a lot of organizations. He was part of the Aviation Club, which was weird. <laughs> but he was also involved with the school magazine and wrote some for that. And he also, what was the point I was going to, oh, <laughs> this was a fun fact. He did not have an overly high IQ. It was just completely average. I don't know why this interview I read, he mentioned that, but he did. He wanted to know, make you know that his IQ was like around 115 to 116. But, so he was just your everyday normal guy. He attended college at Ursinus College, I believe is what you call it, where he did start writing more. He, he wrote an article called Skip Diploma, which included some movie reviews. Actually, one interesting fact from his childhood is that he, in high school, showed promise as an actor, but his father really did not want him to become an actor. And so he pushed against that. And so he then spent like a summer in, uh, in Vienna where he <laughs> looked into possibly becoming a part of the meat importing business, and then became very bored, left and went to college for a while where he explored becoming a writer. 
it would be at Columbia University, though, where he would go in 1939 at the age of 20, where he would meet a guy named Will Burnett, Whit Burnett, who was the editor of Story Magazine, who would get his first stories published. And kind of similar to Kazuo Ishiguro, he didn't show a lot of promise first in the class, but he worked hard. And so by the end of the class, you don't know if it's just because he became famous later that the professor said this, or if it actually is true. But the professor would later in life claim that J.D. Salinger suddenly showed sparks of promise later in the class. And again, this is like we talked about with J.K. Rowling. You don't know if this is just myth building because these people like actually like in Catcher in the Rye happened when he claimed that he saw, who was it, the one actor in that bar? And the girls all get excited and the one mm-hmm. girl then reimagines that she actually saw him too. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the same sort of thing that we do with authors' lives. Uh, you got to imagine like if you had a famous student, a student who became famous, you would want to imagine that you had something to do with that. Or at least find some way to connect the dots and make meaning out of yep. what happened with them. It's just like when a tragedy happens or they interview people that knew the guy that turned out to be the killer. They just want to find find a pattern. Yep. And so it would be in this class, at the tail end of the class, that he would get his first public story published called The Young Folks. After that, World War II would happen, and he would go off to war. Um, and in between that, he was seeing... One, this is just an interesting side bit. Um, are we reading any Eugene O'Neill? Not this year, I don't think, but... He dated Eugene O'Neill's daughter. Huh. For a while, Una O'Neill, until he lost her to, guess who? Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, Charlie Chaplin, which I is funny. read that earlier today. Yeah, and in one interview I read, not with him, but with one of his friends, because he would have some scandalous things written about him later on. Um, they claimed that in a letter he had written to them that he had said something about, he had shown a lot of bitterness about Chaplin taking Una from him. Yeah. Like I some read pretty, the quote. Some pretty nasty things. Some pretty nasty stuff. That yeah. he said about Chaplin, yeah. Chaplin was a monster. Yeah. And so this uh, this kind of- And disin- also about Una O'Neill. Yeah. yeah. It was an awful quote. While he was dating her is when he began to submit things to The New Yorker. And we've talked a lot about The New Yorker. It started in the 20s. E.B. White was one of the head editors. And they rejected most of his stuff. It would be there that he would send his story, Slight Rebellion Off Madison, which would be a Manhattan set story about Holden Caulfield, to The New Yorker. They would not accept anything at the point, this point, though. And they also rejected a whole series of poet, poems from him. He kind of became depressed with his literary career. You know, he had only been published in this small magazine called The Story by Whit Burnett. And so then he goes off to war. He gets drafted. While he's drafted, he goes and he meets, guess who? I don't, know why, I don't know why I'm handling it that way, but just can you guess who? Gertrude Stein. No, close. A woman? No. Someone in her... Roaring 20s kind of... Yeah. Um, uh, You're really generation. close. What's We've the... already mentioned him today. Fitzgerald. No, but he admired Fitzgerald. Er- uh, Ernest Hemingway. Oh, he, he, met, uh, he said that first. I, just, I said that was my first Did you guess. say Ernest? I thought you said Gertrude Stein. I he said, said Hemingway before that. Oh, I didn't uh, hear that. That was my first... W- sorry, That sorry. would have been my first guess. Yes, too. you were right from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hemingway. <laughs> Very good, Nathan. That's what you'll be saying at the end of this entire podcast series, my yeah. friend. You were right from the very beginning. Hey, Nathan was right from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. This is this is great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having fun. I'm having more fun talk about, talking about Salinger than I thought I would. I'm so glad. When Hemingway met him, he read one of his stories, and Hemingway said, "Wow, this kid actually has talent." I think he said he has a hell of a talent. That sounds like what how Hemingway would have said it. <laughs> and Salinger was struck by the fact that Hemingway was more of a pansy than he thought he would be. He was more effeminate. What do you he know about then, that? Yeah. No, you don't no, say. Really. You don't say. So, 
he admired Hemingway. What Salinger wanted was to become a writer in that vein, kind of like Fitzgerald would be at the same time, because Fitzgerald was writing. Well, Fitzgerald would already be towards the star, the twilight of his career at this point. Mm -hmm. But one of the novels that Salinger really admired was The Great Gatsby, and The Great Gatsby makes an appearance in The Catcher in the Rye, because for whatever reason, The Great Gatsby is one of the novels that Holden Caulfield really feels is not phony. You, your guess is as good as mine as to why. Huh. And that's uh, the one that, which maybe means if Salinger has self-awareness, which maybe we'll come to the conclusion that he does, maybe all that means is that Holden Caulfield is a phony. That's the big question, isn't it? That, that's the whole question. Yeah. Which, I mean, fine. If that's the argument you want to make, I still don't know if that merits a whole novel on it. But <laughs> That would be the second, second question. And my answer to that, I think, is going to be a strong no. And I'm really going to, somebody's going to really have to make a strong, solid argument prove otherwise to me. Challenge accepted, Nathan. We'll see. I mean, we'll see. I, I should probably read the book before I throw too much more shade. Okay, so we get to the end of World War II. He tells one of his daughters later in life that you can never really get the smell of burning flesh out of your nose. So World War II is kind of traumatic for him. It stays with him, like we've settled with a lot of these authors. It sticks with you. And so sort of the PTSD symptoms that you see with someone like Holden Caulfield with his brother Allie and stuff like that obviously could be J.D. Salinger trying to come to terms with all the death and destruction he had seen in World War II as well, because he saw some awful things. He saw action in D-Day and in some of the other big battles before he was moved to sort of counterintelligence operations because he knew French and German and could use those skills. And so there's no doubt that he saw some horrible things, just like there's no doubt that C.S. Lewis saw some horrible things. And we know that C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot both saw horrible things. Really, the way that you can gauge an author's Maybe manliness is a way to put it, is the way they deal with having seen those horrible things. It's an interesting question. Who's manly, or C.S. Lewis, or J.D. Salinger? Or Ernest Hemingway, who likes to, well, we don't have to talk he about ended up him. shooting himself. Yep. Anyways, after World War II, around 1947, he would get his first very famous story published with The New Yorker. It would first just be called Banana Fish. And then New Yorker would agree that they thought this was a workable story, and they wanted him to keep working on it. And so for a whole year, he worked on it with the editors. Published it, and it was called A Perfect Day for Banana Fish. And this made his career. You know, you always have this one thing in these writers' lives, usually, that blows up and makes them famous. And this was what it was for him. It got immediate critical acclaim. And then just a few years after that, in 1951, so this was 1946, as soon as Perfect Day for Banana Fish became such a success, the New Yorker put an option on any of his future stories. And that's why pretty much every story he would publish after that would be published in the New Yorker, and he kind of helped establish the New Yorker's reputation for the short story, oddly enough. Until, I mean, today, what people think of when you think of short story and literate uh, poems, usually you would think of the New Yorker. That's the high watermark for any of these. Then in 1951, he would publish this book here, Catcher in the Rye, and it was immediate success. It like had eight printings in the first year. It was huge. People were buying it because some, for some legitimate reasons, like they had heard it was good. And for some non-legitimate <laughs> reasons, like they had heard it was <laughs> like <actually> naughty. <laughs> and that's where you, that's why this book became so famous is because it was known for its frank discussions of sex. People can't see my face. I'm a little bit sarcastic here. And for its uh, language, for its profanity. Certainly has that. And I mean, the, the prostitution, all this that's in the book would have been Scandalous at the time, even more scandalous than Jane Eyre probably would have been at that time. Mm -hmm. So it became so famous and so scandalous like uh, that 
it kind of took on a life of its own in the 1970s. Lots of teachers would actually be fired and because they had taught Catcher in the Rye in the school in their schools. And even today it has this sort of fringe quality to it, even though it, I think outside of Romeo and Juliet, is one of the most commonly taught texts in high school classes. Mm. <laughs> yep. Mm. You have Romeo and Juliet, and then you have Catcher in the Rye. Boo. Yep. That's and so true. here we are. This is, we've got Catcher in the Rye. And Can we a- agree, Nathan, that even if Catcher in the Rye is a fantastic book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that is not a book for high school students? Absolutely. 100% yeah, but that agreed. is what it has become known as. It's become known as a high school book. It's exactly the same thing as 1984 with all its sex scenes and everything. There's certain yeah. books that are just accepted as standard high school texts that, uh, to me, it's insane. Yeah, but that's that's what people think of when they hear Catcher in the Rye. They think this is a high school book, and it's treated as a high school book. It's taught as a high school book, right outside of Romeo and Juliet, one of the most commonly taught texts in high school. Hey, you're experiencing a terrible time in your life. <laughs> How about some? have some more? Yeah. Here you go, kids. <laughs> Which... Yeah, you couple that with the fact that then you get a lot of men who never grow up and pretend this is the greatest novel ever. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's awful. Well, to finish up his life... Um, this is not the greatest... Disclaimer, This whatever we I end up arguing, this is not the greatest novel ever. No. Yeah, the one angry parent wrote that it had 237 instances of the use of God's name in vain, 58 uses of... No, actually, add that with, so closer to 270, and then 58 uses of other foul language. And so, yeah, that's the novel that they're teaching children. Remind me, does it actually contain the F word, or, is it, or does it just allude to the F word? It has the F word at the end. It does it? Because he sees it written on the wall. Oh, but does, but does yeah. he actually, does the book actually spell it out, or does yep. he just, okay. The other novel that's taught almost as much as of Mice and Men, hmm. one that we'll be reading this year as well. Very soon. So we can kind of wrap up J.D. Salinger's life quickly after this. He became wildly famous, and instead of having Fitzgerald's response of kind of boozing it up and then killing his liver, he had the opposite response of turning to Zen Buddhism and other sorts of isms and completely disappearing from life. So that he would, at the end of his writing career, kind of came in the 1960s. Um, He would write, so he had this family that he would write about, um, and uh, um, what is it, A Perfect Day for Banana Fish was about this family. They're called The Glasses. They had these children who were exceptional children, and two of them are famous, the Franny and Zoe. That would be the name of one of his books. And he would write a lot about this, this family, the Glasses, but pretty soon he would withdraw from life. He was married briefly to a German woman who he met during his denazification work after the war. And then he would marry a woman named Claire, who he would draw into these isms. So he would be into Buddhism, then he would be into Hinduism. He, quick, he briefly experimented with Scientology. And she and this other lady that he would be involved with, this, this young Yale lady named Maynard, Louise Maynard, would argue that he would turn to these isms because he felt so embarrassed by his inability to produce novels up to the quality of Catcher in the Rye. But with interviewers, he would claim that every morning he'd wake up and he'd write for three hours but he just never felt the obligation to publish again. He wrote for his own enjoyment, and that he had boxes and boxes, basically, of novels that he had never published and never would publish. And so that was kind of the end of his life. Um, He went and he lived in, where was it? Cornish, New Hampshire. And he went into a little farmhouse, and if any friend would ever try to talk to the press about him, he would cut them off. His wife, Claire, ended up leaving him because she claimed that he was abusive and 
the way that he would close off her relationships with friends and family. He had a brief dabble with this uh, Louise Maynard, and then he would eventually marry a nurse who would stay with him to the rest of his life. And he would have very little contact with the world. He was known as being very protective of his right to privacy. And in fact, there's a quote that, where he says that he feels like that's where all great writing comes from, is the author's right to have his privacy respected. And that's... Then he died in 2010 of natural causes and never wrote a novel that Almost lived Almost 100 up. years old, huh? Yeah. 91. Hmm. Long life. Yay. That's what Scientology will get you, I guess. <laughs> so that's his life. Oh, I guess another thing to mention is that uh, he had one brief experience where he sold one of his novels to Hollywood, stories to Hollywood. It was derided by critics, and so he never would sell any of his other stories to Hollywood. And you had a lot of famous people try to get rights to Catcher in the Rye. Sure, of course. Including Billy Wilder and Steven Spielberg. I would, would have watched either one of those. Yeah, but he said no to all of them. And pretty sure his estate continues to say no to all of them. I don't really know what else there is to say about him. We've talked about his position in literary history at the time. He kind of created his own. He created this style of novel that other than one exception, I can't really think of any writer who's worth reading their novels. Well, what would be the most famous descendants? Philip Roth is the most famous. What would be the most famous novels, though, that these people wrote? Um, a Portnoy's Complaint mm -hmm. and Rabbit Run series. I think that those are definitely within the inheritance of Catcher in the Rye. There are probably others, but he was 32 when he wrote this novel. And it has a certain mystique about it. People get angry at it. This is a strange book because I think it kind of, to some people, this has that classic, you don't touch this book. It is a literary artifact. You mm -hmm. don't touch it, right? I think to certain people, it definitely has that feel to it. But I think it also then is a good place to expose what we talk about all the time in the bookening, is that you can't just assume because a book is a book and that it's been published that it's untouchable. He was 32 when he wrote this thing, younger than all of us. 32 when he published this thing. 32, yeah. So he was in his 30s, early 30s, late 20s. When he started writing this thing, and that we would give him the benefit of the doubt and just assume he was some great untouchable genius, that we can't doubt anything that he says. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure people would quickly be on board with how ridiculous that is for Catcher in the Rye. Mm -hmm. Then by extension, it should be the same for most literature. So Holden Caulfield wouldn't put a, a book like this beyond criticism. No, no he, would he wouldn't. Not. Do you guys think this book was cheesy or phony? I guess we'll discuss that next week. Yeah. Let's decide, though, which... Did we do this last time? We, we did not. We did Who the, Who Are They from Jane Eyre. All right. So let's do whether they're cheesy. Or no, it's not cheesy. It's corny. Brandon, I want you to shout them out. Jake, I want you to say whether they are corny or phony. phony. Sure. These are our dear Patreons that support us at a certain level, and they get a donor shout out. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Corny. The Immortal Chelsea E. The Immortal Chelsea E. Corny. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Phony. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Phony. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Corny. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Corny. The Inscrutable Jenny Z. The Inscrutable Jenny Z. Corny. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. Corny. John and Jill, the lovebirds. John and Jill, the lovebirds. Phonies. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Phonies. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Corny. My beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. Corny. E-M-I-L-Y, Emily. E-M-I-L-Y, Emily. Phony. E-M-I-L-Y, because Emily. Fletcher, the woe-bedraggled wizard of yore. Who? 
Fletcher. Fletcher, the woe-bedraggled wizard of yore. It's a phony. Yeah, probably. All wizards are phonies. <laughs> Anthony, the artful Anthony. Oh, the artful Anthony. Dodger. It's a phony. If you're artful, you're phony. Uh, the uh, dark-hooded lord of death, Jeremy himself. The dark-hooded lord of death, Jeremy himself. It's a phony. Yeah. Yeah, you feel phony. <laughs> And be careful here. The imminently marriageable Ooh. incandescent Meredith. The imminently marriageable incandescent Meredith. Depends on which day of the week we're talking. Yeah. yeah. Joanna. The jumping Joanna. Is that what it is? Mm, I don't know, Joanna. I don't know why yours never sticks in my brain. I've come up with some good ones for you. Oh, the the elven princess, Joanna. The elven princess, Joanna. Corny. Maya. Maya. Tough one right there. Yeah. I'm going with Corny. Rockin' Ryan and Judo Judith. Rockin' Ryan and Judo Judith. There's a pair of phonies if ever there was one. Oh, yeah, man, I know guys. it. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. Another phony. Yep. <laughs> Takes becoming more cynical the farther <laughs> we get down this list. DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. Phony. Benny T and Dana T. Benny, Benny T and Dana T. A bunch of phonies pretending to be corny. Yep. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Phonies. And, of course, yep. Professor X and Lady X. Professor X and Lady X. Corny as they come. You know, considering the fact that they have to use fake names, I'm going to say they might be a little phony, too. Phony. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The Booking was written and produced by uh, produced by me, but but really Brandon kind of wrote it today because he did the context. Thank you, Brandon. Very welcome, Nathan. And next week we'll be back for a battle royale. Maybe we'll even do a trial. I don't know. Maybe we'll have Jake be the judge. Whoa, uh, that'd be interesting. I don't know what we'll do. Maybe maybe I'll be the judge, but I won't be a very impartial judge. Whoa. <sighs> so uh, or maybe Sounds we'll great. maybe we'll just do a regular episode. You want to be the I, judge? And I'd be ha- I'd be happy. You want to be the witness for the defense? Yeah, I'd the... be happy to defend this book against Brandon. Even though I think I agree with Brandon, I... I would be happy to be the defender. If I weaponize Jake to, for my cause, then he'll win. Oh, yeah. So, yep. <laughs> he is the Thor. Nathan, Brandon... Nathan gets to win without fighting. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon famously. You're, you're Loki, he's Thor, and I'm. But you're going to come more prepared than you did in that one famous oh, yeah, bloodbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. <laughs> you're ready for this. <laughs> But Jake will be like technicality, Your Honor. And <laughs> it'll it'll go off the rails pretty soon. <laughs> I'll be, be sustaining fun. things left and right. <laughs> Sustained. <that Jake> <laughs> All right. Overruled. Well, we'll decide what we want to do with that next week. Maybe it'll just be a regular episode. I don't know. We're just talking about this right now, folks. But we'll see you next week for Catcher in the Rye Part Two.